Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and um, yeah, all the listeners of 3CR. So if you're a little dog or cat out there listening to the radio or sitting in the back seat and you're a budgie, you're still welcome because we are the defenders of government schools. D-O-G-S, the Dogs Program. We've been here for a few decades now. Um, if you know what we're on about, um, that's great. If you don't, we defend government schools because they're under attack, both here in Australia and around the world, um, by various forces. Um, Various religious institutions don't like government schools because they take the unwashed masses and give them an education without mentioning the G-O-D word, and so therefore they don't like government schools. Also, government schools are usually, um, when effective, the product of general taxation, general revenue. People club together to educate the children. Um, And there's various private enterprises that think that's a bad idea. And so therefore, those private sources of income actively try to destroy government education systems around the world, and certainly they attempt to destroy it here in Australia. So with those forces arrayed against government schools, they need some defenders, and you're listening to them here on the, on the radio station 3CR and podcast on the WWWs, but you're listening to the, to the defenders of government schools here on the DOGS program. Um, today we'll be going around the world. Um, I'll be doing a sort of in-depth investigation of what's going on in Chile at the moment. Um, in Chile, it's a country in South America which has become incredibly prosperous since the death of the um, dictator Pinochet back in the 90s. Um, but the prosperity of the country has been very in- in- inequitably distributed. It's sort of turned into a sort of neoliberals um, and, and sort of neoliberal theme park, Chile. And at the moment, the results are that the country itself is rioting. It's basically saying we're sick of it. It did this in 2016 as well. Um, and the riots in Chile in 2016 specifically were about education. And in a very fundamental sense, what's happening in Chile now is also about education. They privatise their public education system. It's private mainly in Chile, isn't it, Robert? That's right, Jane. I just introduced Jean here. She's been around for a while. And she'll be t- giving us our press release in a bit. Um, a press release number 800 and what is it, Jane? 15. 815. But I'm going to save that. Um, we're going to have an in-depth look at, at Chile and what's going on there, both socially, culturally and educationally. And, and Jane will be looking at the TAFE sector much closer to home here in Australia. And um, we'll be actually highlighting a particular article that I thought was fascinating through the week, which was written from the Conversation website um, and also published on the drum, um, about the congestion costs of private schooling in Australia. All those two-rack tractors, all those four-wheel drives, all those SUVs clogging up the roads at peak hour to drop kids off to schools where nowhere near where they live is actually creating an economic burden on the country. So um, very, very interesting. Yeah, traffic management and private schools, who would have thought? Well, the, the, the state government has a congestion tax. Perhaps it should extend it. Well, it doesn't have a congestion tax. It's planning on one for those people who live in the city. Um, but, yeah, no, I think if you, if you send your child to a, um, a private school, you should pay an extra taxation levy for the very fact that you send your child to, a, to not the most convenient school to you. Um, that's not a bad idea, but we'll talk about that, I suppose, in some detail because it's now time here on the Dogs Program for what I know you've been waiting for, which is Jean's press release. Well, here it is, press release 815. The Morrison government's TAFE policy reaches new levels of hypocrisy and stupidity. In the last week, coalition government's policy of privatisation of the TAFE system has reached new depths of stupidity and hypocrisy. A key platform for their legitimacy in government is that they will provide jobs. 
a key platform for the legitimacy of their immigration policy is that those jobs will be filled with skilled labour of Australian citizens because we don't want all of those uh, people just coming by boats to Australia that might have better skills than our own people. But their employment rhetoric is a mere smokescreen and there's plenty of smoke screens around Australia at the moment from the bushfires, for their hypocrisy and their downright lies. Two things occurred in the last week which illustrate the gap between their rhetoric and the reality in the TAFE sector of Australia. These are, first of all, the fining of a shonky vet college while public TAFE funding was cut back, And secondly, the government raided the public education budget to pay for drought relief. They transferred $3.9 billion from the Education Investment Fund, which was for infrastructure for education, and particularly for TAFE infrastructure, into its Emergency Response Fund for drought relief with the support of the Labor Party. Now, the first instance, it's a pretty good story, and Scott Coomber of the AEU, that's the Australian Education Union, reported it on their website. A federal court ruling against a failed private training college has highlighted the federal government's folly of funding for-profit vet providers at the expense of the public TAFE system, he wrote. Now, this ruling's been followed by the revelation in the Federal Education Department's annual report that the government fell almost $1 billion, it's $919 million, I think it is, short of budgeted spending on vocational training programs over the past five years at the height of the skills crisis facing Australia. The court handed down a record 26.5 million fine to a group called Empower Institute, as well as a demand that it repay more than 56 million to the federal government for funding that it received to fund courses. The company had put itself, and this is the usual way, of course, when things go belly up for companies, they put themselves into liquidation when the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, that's the ACCC, commenced action against them in late 2017. And this means that the fine is unlikely to ever be paid and inquiries are yet to determine how much the firm can actually repay the government. So that's 56 million of our money that's probably gone down the drain. And how many young people are without the qualifications they were promised? And how many of those young people have debts to the government? This is the unspoken result of these private vet colleges going belly up when they are shonky, and quite a few of them are. Now, the New South Wales Teachers Federation Acting Deputy Secretary Post Schools is a man called Phil Chadwick Sharkey, and he said that the failed college underlined the shortcomings of funding private vocation training providers ahead of the public TAFE. Well, he's not wrong there, listeners. He says that many millions of dollars have been funnelled into these private providers which have either failed or are under investigation. The dogs have um, estimated that it's a $19 billion uh, problem. At the same time, the Federal Coalition Government has wound down the public TAFE system to a shadow of its former self with funding and staffing cutbacks reflected in a drastic decline in the enrolments. But here in Victoria, when uh, students were offered free TAFE courses, there was a big spike in enrolment and there weren't the courses to offer them, of course. And there are students with heavy debts, no qualification and no job prospects.
So uh, it's a very sad story indeed. And instead of bolstering the public system, the government has thrown money at these private providers under the neoliberal mantra that competition makes the economy stronger. In so many ways, Sharkey says, this approach has proved to be destructive and none more so than the vocational education sector and the damage inflicted on what was a world-class public educator. But what is happening in TAFE is in fact reflective of what is only happening in the primary and secondary sectors, although they have fought back uh, more, more efficiently perhaps than TAFE. And the dog's position is that the private sector never has, never can and never will educate or prepare Australian children for their life after school. When will our government leave behind the never-never land of neoliberal ideology and face the immediate realities for our next generation? They're denialists in both this sense, the education area and, as we know, the climate area. Now, the second instance, the second thing that happened in the last week happened a bit earlier on the 17th of October. Uh, the federal government funding disaster relief as being financed by stripping billions from education infrastructure in this country, just so that Mr Frydenberg can say that he has a surplus. This is scary stuff. On 17th of October 2019, the AEU, that's the Australian Education Union, in a media release revealed that the Morrison government has passed legislation to fund a national disaster relief package by stripping billions of dollars from another federal fund originally intended for investment into education infrastructure. Now, they're going to transfer $3.9 billion from this education investment fund, that's an EIF, into its emergency response fund. Just a paper, just, just a few figures on paper with a lot of young people's future at stake, including those children out in the towns deprived of water in the drought. The bill was passed with Labor's support. So Labor supported this transfer of money from the infrastructure fund, which they set up, into the drought, drought fund. But the Greens and Senator Jackie Lambie, bless her little cotton-picking socks, voted against the measure. Now, the Labor Party established this EIF, Education Investment Fund, way back in 2009 to provide dedicated ongoing capital funding for tertiary education and research infrastructure, including TAFE. The TAFE wouldn't have got all of that money, given how, how, um, what an effective lobby the universities are, but there was still money there for them. And the coalition has stopped the payments from the fund since 2014 anyway. That's because of Mr Abbott, of course. But in return for Labor's support, the Morrison government will allocate an additional $50 million per year to TAFE infrastructure investment. So it was um, a payoff, a bit of payola, uh, $50 million to the TAFE infrastructure with $3.9 billion gone. The AEU believes that while it's vital to provide generous disaster relief for communities which need it, it shouldn't be at the expense of education because those funds are desperately needed by TAFE. TAFE has been underfunded since forever. For some reason, Australians look down on trades until, of course, they realise that the plumber is making more than the medical specialist. Now, is public education politically friendless? The AEU still appears to place its hopes in a spineless Labor Party, while the Greens and even Jackie Lambie had the guts to vote against robbing, robbing TAFE to pay drought-affected farmers. 
However, the Labor Party does have the sense to mouth the right rhetoric at the moment. On the 30th of October, this last week, Karina Haythorpe of the AEU welcomed Labor's continued commitment to address Australia's skills crisis and strengthen the vocational education and training sector. There isn't just a drought crisis, there's a skills crisis. And at least the Labor Party is admitting that there is a skills crisis, which is more than um, Mr Morrison is prepared to do. Ms Haythorpe also welcomed Mr Albanese's announcement of Jobs and Skills Australia, in which he described a collaborative model to guide investment in human capital. I don't know what that means. Um, it might well mean uh, private enterprise and uh, being paid by the public. So you really would want to know a lot more about where the Labor Party is at these days since they're rushing, rushing, rushing to get rid of or to be politically correct, whatever that is. The Morrison government, however, should be held accountable for the dire effects their funding policies have had upon the Australian TAFE sector and the Australian economy. And Karina's 30th of October media release is very informative and attempts to hold the coalition to account. And here's some of the things that she said. She pointed out the Morrison government has been nothing short of a disaster for TAFE and for for vocational education because the TAFE funding cuts have had a devastating impact on the students, communities and staff. Since being in government, the Federal Coalition has overseen 140,000 fewer apprentices now than when it was elected, which is extraordinary given the enormous amount of construction in our, uh, with these strange-looking buildings which have strange cladding on them in our, our cities. Uh, so they've also cut $3 billion from vocational education and there's been a decline in the enrolments in the education and training overall. Their focus on industry over TAFE shows a complete abrogation of the responsibility to ensure that Australia has a strong public TAFE system providing opportunity for high quality education to skill or reskill the workforce. If people are going to lose jobs, and they are with the new um, technological revolution, then they're going to need reskilling. So where are they going to go to be reskilled? Now, we've seen the Prime Minister, she says, strip $4 billion in tertiary sector capital funding from the Education Investment Fund, and they've failed to spend nearly $1 billion in funding allocated for TAFE and training programs. So the AEU wants a minimum of 70% government funding to the public TAFE system. So they're not taking on the private system head on. And no public funding, they think, should go to private for-profit providers consistent with other education sectors. Well, I'm not sure what they mean by that because the AEU used no-state aid policy went west some time ago. They also want a restoration of funding to rebuild the TAFE system. They want a reinvestment in the TAFE teaching workforce because it's a very particular workforce, the TAFE workforce, and those teachers are some of the very best because they teach by doing. Uh, They are like in the old medieval guild uh, tradition, really. They are very, very special teachers indeed. Um, The AEU also wants the development of a capital investment strategy in consultation with the state governments. The problem is, of course, the TAFE is mainly funded from the state. But I worked out many, many years ago that they only ever got one-seventeenth of what the universities got. A TAFE student is only worth about one-seventeenth of a university student in Australia. They also want an inquiry into TAFE. And as far as the AU concerned, and the dogs too, the Morrison government has failed the fairness test when it comes to public education. But dogs are saddened by the faith placed by the AEU in the Australian Labor Party. As a strong lobby group, and the AEU is a strong lobby group, 
they would be better served to be unaligned, falling back on basic principles rather than false promises. Public education and our liberal democracy is best served by strong statement of the principle that public funds should be for public education only. So that is press release 8.15 and we'll have a bit of a break from my voice, a bit of music, and then Robert's got quite a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. The Docs Program in on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the www's. Um, and you can go to our website, www.adogs.info, and connect to 3CR and listen to me from there, I suppose. Um, isn't technology a wonderful thing? Um, Jean quite rightly points out the importance of the TAFE sector in the funding mix in Australia and how, in fact, it's been neglected for so long. It's just so basic. Yeah, Sorry. pretty simple stuff, isn't it? Um, but... Australia in the last 20 years has gone from being one of the most effective and efficient and accountable education systems in the world to certainly one of the least efficient and, and as, as a correlation rather than a causation, as a correlation, one of the most inequitable. Australian education system is one of the three most inequitable situa- um, education systems in the OECD, which is to say that when you're born poor, you stay poor. When you're born rich, you stay rich. If you're born in the middle, you can certainly fall off the tree, so you better watch yourself. And if you're born just under the middle, you better work hard, you might get up, who knows. But social mobility in Australia has not just stagnated, it's gone backwards. Mm. We are functionally creating a class-based society and we have been doing so for the last 20 years. And at the core of this is the fact that we separate our, our children from birth into the haves and the have-nots, which is reflected by the government funding of elite private schools, the government funding of private schools in general, and, of course, the government funding of state schools, but the underfunding, functionally, of state schools. Now, there, are, there is one country in particular that is worse than Australia, uh, is more inequitable, is more apartheid when it comes to separating out children, not on the colour of their skin particularly, separating out children not on the basis of religion even, but separating out the children on the basis of their parents' incomes. And one country that is worse than Australia is a country called Chile. It's in South America. It is, in fact, one of those countries that's often touted as an economic miracle. Um, since the fall of Pinochet in the 90s, um, the economy in Chile has gone gangbusters. Um, there are lots of nice, big, tall, shiny buildings. You can get a really good flat white in downtown Santiago. Um, there's all sorts of really good things going on, but functionally, underneath that all, the education system and the economy itself is fundamentally inequitable. Now, just a little bit of history. Um, well, the dogs have been around for a while, and we reported on the education rights in Chile in 2016. Um, basically, young children and their parents dragged their parents out into the street and said, this is not fair. There are schools here which are well-funded. There are schools here which are not well-funded functionally because the entire education system in Chile had been privatised and they'd been using a voucher system since the 90s. Um, In an article, this is way back in 2016 by Casey Quackenbush for Time magazine, Casey says, Students' protests calling for education reforms erupted into violence um, back in May 2016 when police tried to reroute a match of students. Protesters, students, were marching through the centre of the capital, Santiago, through stones of police for, after refusing to take an alternate route. Police deployed tear gas, water cannons to disperse the demonstrators. Now, this is not today. This is not, this is not now. This is back two, three years ago. There were 117 people arrested during these riots on this particular day and 32 officers were injured in the clashes. Now, this upheaval and these, these riots are continued 
for some time after that, mm. through May, June, July and August. Um, the upheaval followed months of frustration with the President Michel uh, Bachelet, who was the President back in those days, who had promised for free education for all. But she had yet to realise the promise, promises of free education and free university education um, because the economy refused to redistribute itself because it was a neoliberal one. And neoliberal economies are famously reluctant to distribute things to people who they think would be undeserving. It's actually simpler than that. The rich don't want to pay tax so that the poor can re- uh, have opportunities. No, no, they don't. In fact, why would the rich want the poor to have opportunities? Because the rich want to stay rich. And so often we find the concept of being rich is a comparative one. As long as I'm richer than the poor person, then I don't really mind. But the demonstrators basically chanted, we're tired of waiting. Um, Bachelet was elected to a second non-consecutive term back in 2014 after pledging to implement free education in a country that has recently, of course, privatised and used vouchers across the entire country. But because the economy had stagnated at that time in 2014, um, these social reforms were delayed and the people were sick of it. Now, in the, in the wash-up of the riots in 2016, there was a, an uneasy truce. There was promises that we will fix it, we will fix it, we know it's, in a, we know it's unequal, we know it's inequitable, we know it's a problem, and we will fix it. Now I want, dear listeners, for you to fast-forward in your minds, not from 2016, but to today, and yesterday, and the day before, because they're tired of waiting again. The neoliberal economy says, oh, don't worry, we'll sort that out next year. Now for three years, to the point where the entire country led, I would have to say, by secondary school students. Okay, so these riots have been led by secondary school students jumping barriers at railway stations because they put up the fares to the local metro and the fares were just now too much for the poor people of Santiago, the poor secondary school students. And so, oh, we're just going to jump the barriers. They jumped the barriers, the police reacted, um, there were some deaths, there were some riots, there were some burnings, and now the entire country... Um, is up in arms. But to give you more details, I don't want you to listen to my voice, um, Dale has got a report. Thanks, Rob. I've got an article here by Jennifer Pribble entitled, uh, Chile's Crisis Was Decades in the Making. And I think that's from the Financial Times. So mm. a, a lot of the material we get in terms of South America comes from financial uh, mm. papers and things because they don't necessarily... I mean, yes, they're neoliberal, but there's no point in lying if, if money is on the line. Mm. So I often go to the Financial Times or even Time magazine or various other financial papers to get the information. So sorry to interrupt you, Dar, but no. I think this report's really interesting. Yeah, rights are not good for business, are they? <laughs> As Jane says, follow the money. Okay, yes, uh, the report goes... Uh, The chaotic protests unfolding across Chile are a crisis that have been waiting to happen since the end of General Augusto Pinochet's 17-year dictatorship in 1990. The story may have surprised outsiders who know only of the country's reputation for economic stress, economic success, I should say, but for Chileans it was years in the making. And it is a tale of rapid but unequal economic growth of a state that has withdrawn from its regulatory and social policy roles and of a political class that has been unwilling to transform the country's economic and social model. Chile's experience is an object lesson in the dangers of ignoring inequality and the importance of building inclusive political institutions. On October 18, following a day of protests that turned violent, President Sebastian Piñera declared a state of emergency. Mr Piñera's militarised response, which later involved imposing a curfew and declaring that Chile was at war, served only to escalate tensions. It also hearkened back to the 1970s, when political parties of the centre and right responded to demands for increased social and economic inclusion with repression, partnering with the military to overthrow the democratically elected socialist president, Salvador Allende. 
The dictatorship dis- dismantled Chile's social safety net, privatising the pension system and partially privatising health provision. These reforms created a growing class of citizens with precarious access to public services and benefits. After the return to democracy in 1990, demands for redistribution slowly re-emerged, but Chile's political parties focused their energies elsewhere, extending the neoliberal model. Following the Pink Tide election of Socialist Presidents Ricardo Lagos in 2000 and Michelle Bachelet in 2006, the centre-left coalition of parties, the Concertación, carried out reforms to the country's education, health and pension systems, expanding access to benefits but maintaining the privatised framework. The scope of the Concertación's reforms was particularly acute for education and pension policy. The early centre-left governments consolidated the voucher scheme subsidising private education introduced in the Pinochet era. Ms Bachelet's first administration created a minimum pension for the bottom 60% of income earners. Prior to that, many Chileans made do without any income support in old age. The reform made a crucial step forward, but the size of the benefit remained extremely small. Between 2006 and 2011, inequality became increasingly politicised. A growing student movement pointed to the excessive cost of university education and the dismal quality of public schools. Student protests ushered in a new era of mobilisation, though the traditional parties sought to continue with politics as usual. The fragility of of the political system came to a head during the 2017 presidential election. The electorate fractured between the new left parties, the traditional centre-left and the right. Mr Piñera won, but his victory owed as much to the divisions on the left as it did to his appeal to voters. The results revealed an increasingly polarised electorate with a strong left-wing and profound frustrations over inequality. It also pointed to a citizenry that had lost faith in political parties and elites. The combination of a delegitimised political system and a frustrated electorate has made the current government vulnerable. It lacks the tools needed to engage with protesters and a and build a more inclusive regime. Any attempts to resolve the conflict will require deep structural reforms to the welfare state, but also to political institutions and parties. If Chile is to find a way forward, it will have to leave the legacy of dictatorship behind. Thank you very much, Dar. We'll be returning with more after this. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Hi, Kerry Lee Harding here and I want to invite you to the 2019 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 14th of November Upstairs at Mesa on Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. This is the message that we send to the black, yellow and red. I'm an Aborigine and I'd always represent... There'll be a panel discussion on justice, Indigenous incarceration and the power of radio, along with music, food and, of course, free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday, the 14th of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6.30 to late 30. See you there. Welcome back to the Dodge Program. Thank you, Dar, for that report from the Financial Times about what's going on in Chile today um, and yesterday and the day before. Um, Chile's in trouble. 
Um, and I think one of the most fascinating things from, from that report from the Financial Times is that the fundamental problem is you have a population which is disengaged from the political process and functionally has nothing to lose. Um, there is inequality and they're going, but that's not right and I'm going on the streets because what on earth do I have to lose? Now, I think both of those conditions exist around the corner from where I'm sitting in front of this microphone. Certainly, liberal, liberal democracies require a certain amount of buy-in to the political process. Every time someone says, oh, they're all as bad as each other, I don't trust any politicians, your liberal democracy dies just a little. Um, if you don't engage in the political process, which is what's happened in Chile, then you end up on the street. Or, in Australia, you end up you know, beating up on immigrants, I suppose, because it's going to be somebody's fault. But in Chile, they haven't done that. In Chile, they've sort of gone to the root cause, which is, functionally, that they've been promised things that weren't delivered in terms of services by the state. And one of the largest ones, because this goes back a while, is the educational services. Now, as Dale quite rightly pointed out, um, President Bachelet, I think that's how you say it? Bachelet? Bachelet. Oh, thank you so much for saving me, Dale. Um, President Bachelet promised a certain amount of things, but she wasn't willing to depart from the voucher system. Now, the voucher system, just to remind our listeners, is where everyone gets a voucher with a certain amount of money and they get to take it to the school that they choose to go to. Which is a version of what we've got here in Australia. It's definitely a version of what we have in Australia, which means that all the rich people send their children off to the rich people's school and then top it up with their money. And all the poor people send their, people, their children off to the poor people's school and the amount of money they get in their vouchers is not enough to give them a good education. And they don't have any money to top it up. This creates generational inequality, which is why in 2016... The kids rioted, and which is now in 2019, why the kids are rioting. And the, the population says, actually, they have a point. I'm going to go out there with them. The old people are out there now. Now, the teachers are also out on the streets in Chile, and I have some anecdotal reports of what's going on on the streets here. And this is a report from um, the TRT World magazine, which, again, is a financial uh, paper from America, and they're interested in financial terms about what on earth is what these rights are about. Now, we're told in general it's about you know, something to do with inequality and um, being misunderstood and stuff like that, but actually it's far deeper. In fact, sometimes we're told it, it's all about raising of the fares for the train trips. But every single person who's been spoken to on the ground in Chile and the rice has said, it's not about the trains. That's just what kicked it off jumping the barriers and then the police coming in. That's not actually what it's about. It's about the fundamentals. It's you about us paying taxes and not getting what we want. It's about there being no social mobility in a country which has become increasingly wealthy. And, they, and you, I think you have to also go back to the days of Allende and what happened with the um, when, when Pinochet took over from Allende and his, his daughter, of course, has written wonderful novels about all this. Yeah. Fact, there I, was hope. There I, was a I hope for fact, something I better. I will, in fact, be talking about the Chicago School and its approach yeah, in Chile yeah, as well. Yeah. Because on, just, just recently, just last week, the Chilean president put his ministers on notice as he looked to reshuffle his, cam- to reshuffle his cabinet to, to, um, to respond to the mass protests. More than a million people last Friday joined a peaceful rally demanding more equality in Chile. Mm. A million people in one city, and there's many, many Mormonians across the country doing the same thing. The Santiago governor, Carla Rubila, said the protests just last Friday represented a dream for a new Chile mm. because the mayor was protesting as well. Protests in Chile grew after the now suspended increase in the prices of train tickets. And this situation evolved to show a wider society's grievances and centering, of course, on the concept of inequality. They're just sick of it. Now, beyond cases of looting, 19 Chileans have actually died in this part of this process and over thousands, uh, over a thousand have been injured. There's now allegations of torture and abuse by, by police forces, which are now said to be investigated by the United Nations when the delegation arrives um, just next week. Well, that takes you back to all of the disappeared under Pinochet. And remember, Mrs Thatcher thought Mr Pinochet was wonderful. Um, back to today. Um, the President said we are now in a new reality. That's uh, President Sebastian Piñera. But as time moves on, his popularity in the opinion polls, I mean, he's trying to say, well, I'm with you too, this is all not... No, no, the, the, the protesters aren't buying it. Now, as the Chileans unite, 
Teachers in particular are demanding wholesale changes to education as they call for more equality. This is functionally at the heart of what's going on. Now, I'd like to quote now some anecdotes, um, some what the teachers on the ground are saying. Now, Louise is a 58-year-old history teacher from the Colegio de San Francisco de la Florida, and in one of the protests, he was holding a banner calling out for government wealth. I'd like some, please. He says, I believe it's time to end inequality. There are a few people, there are a few people with lots and lots. And then there's many more people with little money and it's just badly distributed. Because Chile itself is not poor. This is not some poor third world country we're talking about here. And I cannot emphasize this enough. The similarities between Chile and Australia are striking and to my mind quite frightening. But this teacher says children do not have the education they deserve. Very few people have a lot of money, but most of us are now living at the margins. One works trying to give their best so the children and the youth can aspire towards the better future, he says. That's why I'm a teacher. He goes on to say, in Chile we have a good education, but it's completely private, which is down to the market, and it's not at all regulated by the state. Public education is considered low in quality in resources, and he says that it's down to an even distribution of wealth, affecting the quality of education of most of the students. He says it's segregated, it's divided, it's disjointed. It, 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 in, he says, where I live, one kilometre, we have a high school of excellent quality, and nearby there's a precarious school which depends upon the goodwill of all the parents who have no money around it. Now, Lizette is a 29-year-old English teacher, and she has some things to say about this too. She's a proud Chilean, and her school is in downtown Santiago. And she says, the government doesn't help much with classroom materials for students. We have to buy things ourselves out of our remit, like clothes for children, to wear, to school. Nobody in the government even wants to listen to what we have to say. Now, Jessica, a 39-year-old PE teacher, works with many of the children who come from what she describes as, and I think this is lovely, delicate situations. She says, we work with vulnerable kids. They arrive without having breakfast. We support them. We buy them clothes. We buy them food. And we buy them useful things for their education from our wages, which are not substantial. They come from a context where their parents have almost no education. Their parents don't have a good job. She says, this whole thing affects the possibilities of the life of the children going forward. Sound familiar? Mm. It sounds very Australian to me. Um, she also goes on to say it treats children, the whole system itself. In fact, in particular, the National Minor Service in Chile, they, they have, for difficult children, they, they basically militarise them. She says this whole system treats children as if they're criminals. Children committing crimes have been left in a vulnerable position or abused or not looked after by the family and... If they haven't been looked after by the family, that makes them a criminal, and so therefore they're forced into national service. She feels that the government could better invest their money, especially around um, the 90% of children she teaches that actually are vulnerable. Um, she goes on to say, our salary doesn't actually even pay 50% of our, for our work. Um, and what happens is, of course, that various teachers... Um, are in situations where when they're on a pension, because um, you know, teachers sometimes do survive through the entire system in their lives, um, the pension itself is not actually enough to live on. So there's nothing to look forward to from them. But teachers indeed face today many other problems. Um, Para went on, to, on the streets with her pots and pans to complain, but um, she got shot. She got shot by the police. Um, she said, well, I've got a graze, but some other friends of mine were also shot by the police, and one of them lost their eye. They're not dead, but she's, she says it's not right. The violence the police are now inflicting upon people is very, very brutal. Again, I come back, is this happening in Australia? Yes, actually, mm. in Melbourne, just recently. Mm. Uh, the police have decided that horses are the best solution to breaking, to breaking up um, demonstrations in Australia. And, of course, if you don't like the horse stepping on you, then, of course, you're abusive to the horse. And I will tell all those protesters to get some elephant piss and a few good drums. <laughs> um, if you get a few good drums, Mum, um, what you'll find is that you most, you most certainly will be locked up yeah. because you know that's the case. Yeah. In fact, I wouldn't recommend that because that's one sure ticket to getting yourself arrested. 
Look, one of Sola's demands is for basically a better pension. I mean, I want to be able to work as a teacher. Yes, I give half of my salary to the kids, and yes, it's not enough, but I wouldn't mind a decent, a, a decent pension. Um, but this is all down functionally to the concept. Um, they're actually out there protesting against one thing and one thing only, which is neoliberal economics, mm. structural inequality. The more money in the country doesn't mean more money to the people. And the people are going, well, that's not right. Now, Mario Anguilar is a 58-year-old teacher and a director of the Teaching Trade Union in Chile. He protested alongside several of his colleagues over the last couple of weeks. He said, we are tired that education has become a business, something to be consumed. There's an industry profiting from the basic right to education. He says, everything in Chile is a market, a business, and the people are tired of this. During the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, and I promised I'd tell you about this, the Chicago Boys, a bunch of graduates from the University of Chicago, implemented wholesale free market reforms across the entire Chilean economy. We we were one of the most pioneering territories to allow the market as a means to distribute knowledge, the invisible hand indeed. This is why schools, high schools, colleges and other educational places, much like a company, focus on selling And what they're selling is the image. And they're selling the image of good results. And, I mean, he critiques that this is not actually what education is all about. It's not creating the product, and the product being the image of a good education. He says it's a neoliberal system here in Chile which generates spaces of productivity solely for big business owners and not for the workers, solely for the companies and the people who run the schools, not for the teachers themselves. Every day you have to compete. He says it's an individualistic competition. It doesn't allow us to breathe. It obliges us to work towards efficiency. Children are not happy. We are not happy doing this. We are recuperating. We are taking our right to joy and to happiness, to share between us and not to look at those next to us as a competitor and an enemy, but rather as a colleague, a partner, a neighbour, and not someone that we have to defeat. A million people on the streets of Santiago last week, and this is what they're talking about. Teachers among them. I think it's an absolutely fascinating process. You're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We'll return shortly to give you some good news, because guess what? We've got another great state school. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State College. schools are great. Harkaway Primary great School. State Sunshine North Primary School. They're really school. concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually, an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's who, that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a positive great relationships with each other, with teachers, and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast, and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program.
This week's great state school is the Malvern Central School. And guess where that is? It's in Malvern. Yep, the middle of the middle of the middle of the middle of the east of Melbourne. Right, it's back in the middle. It's an amazing place, Malvern. Um, it's a state school surrounded by private schools. It's a central school. It's a rather interesting school, actually, because Melbourne Central School is a proud state government school providing a contemporary range of learning experience for all students from foundation to year six. The school provides inviting resources. It's, it's, it has a flexible learning spaces. I've worked there. It's an amazing place. And a generous ratio of technology for the students. The leadership team comprises, well, you know, what you would expect, a principal and some people to help, and they work through distributed leadership model. So the principal is a first amongst equals. Because, wow, what do you mean? No, no, no. State schools can actually decide, decide upon their own leadership structures, and this is what they've decided. So the principal is a first amongst equals, certainly amongst you know the leadership team, but then then the, then the, the teachers themselves. Look, it's proud, and it's been around for a while, and it's proud of it's proud of its trust that it has in the capacity of its teachers, because they themselves are the equals which the principal works most, and they work collaboratively. And I've seen this. Very rarely do you have a lesson where you have one teacher in a classroom where kids aren't coming in and out and teachers aren't coming out and support staff aren't coming in and out because, hey, I thought you'd be interested in this and they're working collaboratively. Let's put the classes together and we'll go outside and we'll do this. They are collaborative to teachers. They are collaborative learners. Now, the school draws itself on the principles of research, indeed, and the studies, and I'm not particularly fond of this, but of positive psychology, which encompasses strengths and does encourage individual learning. They have a junior school, which has a different model to the senior school, and they have a deep, deep and abiding interest in professional development for all of their teachers to be up to the minute when it comes to the teaching learning practices which are the most effective and efficient for the kids in the school. I think, And there's one particular thing which they've done, um, is that strategically they're providing their students with the 21st century ability to be agile and responsive to a changing sort of educational environment, even as they enter high school wherever they may end up. So as a school, um, who are the kids? Well, the kids themselves, mainly from the, from the upper quartile, upper quartiles, I should say, of socioeconomic advantage in Australia, which is not necessarily a surprising thing. Um, but what that means is, because, you know, they're from Malvern, and a lot of reasonably wealthy people live in Malvern, so the local school, that's what you get. But... And I think this is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, there's 438 kids in the school this year, which is nice. So it's a good size, not small, not large. But I think the most fascinating thing was two things. Firstly, what, you know, what are the results of the kids? You know, what are their NAPLAN results? They're fine. Absolutely fine. I mean, it just so happens, I mean, if we were going to talk about it in detail, uh, in, in third year, their grammar's not brilliant. Um, in year five, their grammar is stunningly brilliant and well above average. So something's happening in those two years to turn that around. Everything else is just fine. Compared to all Australian students, of course, they're well above average because in Australia, and I'm going to say it again, it is a terrible and disgusting fact that the, the income of your parents determines your educational um, ability to do tests. I find that. Still, I'm just going to keep saying it because it keeps shocking me. If, as soon as that doesn't shock me, I'm going to go off the air. But the really interesting thing is that we have these kids, most of which come from the upper two quartiles. There's about 20% of kids from the lower two quartiles in, in, when it comes to income and all that sort of stuff. Is that to educate an average kid in a primary school to a gold standard in Australia costs around about $13,000 in a primary school. More for a secondary college because you have so specialist teachers and facilities. $10,000 a kid a year is what they're forking out at Morven Central School. Because they don't need that much money to make a bunch of reasonably wealthy and put, well put together kids get a good education. $10,000. That's a saving to the taxpayer of $3,000 per child. Now multiply that by 450 kids. You've made yourself a wonderful saving. That is a lot less money than put into many of the primary school, private primary schools, around Australia today with similar profiles of intake. So I would say that Morven Central School is the most economically efficient school in Victoria. You talk about efficiencies and the free market and all that sort of stupid stuff. You want to talk about real efficiencies, there's a real efficiency. There's a school that's running lean and running well. 
I've been there, I've worked with those kids and I've worked with those teachers. It's an exceptional school. In fact, I have to say it's more than exceptional. It's absolutely great. A great state school, Morven Central School. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm the proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Yeah, you've been listening to the Docs program. We've travelled the world, haven't we? From TAFE here in Australia to the Morven Central School to what's going on in Chile. Um, I cannot emphasise enough with the Chile question how similar Chile is to Australia. Everyone thinks South America's, you know, full of these rat bags and revolutionaries. No, Chile, Chile has a similar income profile. In fact, the Chilean economy is actually more robust than the Australian one because it depends less upon natural resources and more upon value adding the Chilean economy. It's fascinating. Um, I think often we look to the northern hemisphere for what's going to happen in the future. I think perhaps we should look a lower our gaze and avoid what's happening with Chile by sort of getting rid of private education here in Australia and creating a, a generation of universally well-educated students, which is to say, who cares what their parents earn. But you've been listening to the Dogs Program. If you're interested in what I'm saying or what Jean's saying or what Dale's saying, or indeed you can think of a good school that you think should be a great school, please do feel free to contact us. Um, firstly, at our website, www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Or through the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Or if you do think of a good state school, you say, oh, I wonder if I can get my ideas on the radio, because this school's great. Please do call at 94198377. That's 94198377. And if you call during business hours, someone will pick up and say, yep, you say, just want to call about the dogs program. There's this really cool school that I want Rob to, to review. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. You're the boss of me. Um, because you're the listeners, and this is the community, and that's what it's all about. But until next week, from myself, Dale and Jane, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you'll find your hill It's there you'll find I saw 
was I but Joe, you're ten years dead, I never.